On today's episode of Unlocking the Club, I am thrilled to be in conversation with Dr. Michelle Goodwin. Dr. Goodwin is a Chancellor's Professor at the University of California, Irvine, and founding director of the Center for Biotechnology and Global Health Policy, where she is the recipient of the 2020-2021 Distinguished Senior Faculty Award for Research, the highest honor bestowed by the University of California. Professor Goodwin is also a senior lecturer at Harvard Medical School, an elected member of the Hastings Center, the American Law Institute, as well as an elected fellow of the American Bar Foundation. Professor Goodwin directed the first ABA-accredited health law program in the nation and established the first law center focused on race and bioethics. Her health law scholarship is hailed as exceptional in the New England Journal of Medicine. She ranks among the most cited professors in the field. Professor Goodwin is a sought-after public commentator and has been featured in print, radio, and television news, including Forbes, The Washington Post, The New York Times, Los Angeles Times, NBC News, and NPR, among others. She is also host of the On the Issues with Michelle Goodwin podcast at Ms. Magazine. A prolific author, her books include Black Markets, The Supply and Demand of Body Parts, Baby Markets, Money and the Politics of Creating Families, and her most recent title, Policing the Womb, Invisible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood. Thanks for tuning in as we unlock the club with our special guest today, Professor Michelle Goodwin. Welcome to the Unlocking the Club podcast, where we host honest and direct conversations about journeys of access, personal truth, and reclaiming space. We share our truth so that you can find the key to own your truth, honor your journey, and reclaim your space. Grab your keys, your wallet, your phone, and invite your friends to meet you at the club. Here's your host, Angela Taylor. Hey there. I'm your host, Angela Taylor for Unlocking the Club, and I just want to thank you for joining us today. Today, we're actually going to unlock the club by having a really important conversation about women's rights, reproductive rights, and the pressure to succeed for women in general and specifically for Black women. You know, when we think about reclaiming our space and unlocking our truth, I think that sharing and hearing the stories about navigating the internal and external pressure to succeed is a really fascinating and relatable one. Uh, I find myself to be in conversation quite often with Black women who feel the added pressure to be perfect, to not make a mistake, to blaze the path, and to prioritize others so that those following in our footsteps will not just have an opportunity, but a better opportunity in the future. What is true for me was that there was this fear that if I don't get it right and I don't do well, the doors behind me will be closed to opportunities. And that was true for me during my 20 plus year career in sports and entertainment. Actually, if I'm being honest, um, that was the case in many aspects of my life, where as I rose up the ladder and earned my spot at the tables where I often was the only woman and certainly the only person of color, I had the sense that every move I made would either positively or negatively impact the scope of opportunities for those behind me. It was paralyzing at times and exhausting at others. Well, when I take a step back and look at the landscape today, I see an all out assault on our rights as women and as black women. And I think about those who are fighting for our rights on a daily basis and the incredible sense of pressure that responsibility may have on their being if they take their foot off the gas for just one moment. 
the system and those puppeteering the system may come in and take advantage of that simple pause. Well, I don't know about you, but this all feels extremely overwhelming. And some may feel that it to be a burden or an obligation, but I sense that for those of us who believe there is no other alternative, they believe it to be an important responsibility, which is why I am thrilled to introduce you today to our special guest who literally operates at the nexus between healthcare and the law and is constantly fighting for the generations of women generally and black women specifically to come. Our guest on Unlocking the Club today is Professor Michelle Goodwin. Professor Goodwin, it is an honor and a complete pleasure to have you on Unlocking the Club. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Well, the bio, as I read through that, I still am just amazed at the, the litany of things that you've been doing over the course of your incredible career. Um, I would love to start with a little bit about specifics about Michelle Goodwin and maybe more important, what's important to you and who you are as a human being, not just the person behind all that incredible work, but you as the human. That's a great question to start with. I've long felt that what guides me are sets of core values. So yes, you, you've read my resume and, and that bio and thank you for your generosity there. But you know, when I think about my life, I'm guided by principles of accountability. You know, that's something that was instilled in me by my grandparents. It's interesting the way in which that has been co-opted as a kind of right-wing value when I think for you know generations upon generations uh, since black people were kidnapped and trafficked to the United States, there's been a concern about accountability, about integrity, uh, dignity, and also perseverance. And over the years, I've also come to think about the importance of empathy as well. And in all of that have been journeys of courage. I had the benefit when I was a child of living in very close proximity with my grandparents. In fact, living with my grandparents while my parents lived abroad and they lived in Canada. And I had the opportunity to be with uh, my grandparents with one set during the week and then the other set over the weekend. And the set that I lived with during the week, my maternal grandparents, they lived, they came from Mississippi. You know, they were the survivors of Jim Crow. And I think it's really important that we change the language about how we understand parts of our country and Black people who lived in them. And they really were survivors, pioneers. You know, we, there's greater attention today to the great Black migration. You know, these are people who are refugees to the North. And when you think about it, it's not extreme to say that. I mean, Isabel Wilkerson has mentioned this in The Warmth of Other Suns, a really powerful, important book. But when you think about the denial of voting rights, uh, the denial of equality with regard to schooling, the fact that you couldn't even go into parks, you know, like all of these litany of kinds of things, who wouldn't want to escape that? I mean, anywhere else that would be a refugee who leaves these kinds of situations where you are not even, it's not even second class citizenship, it's third class, fourth class citizenship, when you know that the possibility is lynching when you step, you know, what would be considered out of line in those spaces. And so growing up during the week with that one set of grandparents who had such grand empathy, kindness, 
poise and it's it's amazing i mean it's the part of what you know i i love your your show and what you're doing here unlocking the club and untapping what it is because i think there's still so much that's untapped about that legacy how do people come out of those experiences and be kind loving generous and still want to make the best of this country not just for themselves but for everybody and then on the weekends i lived with my uh paternal uh grandmother who took me to opera ballets all of those kinds of things and so it was a really terrific kind of meshing of cultures that were all a part of a black american experience there's a long way of answering your question but that's how i get to thinking about perseverance accountability integrity and dignity because as you know very well those women were about dignity and how you show up in any circumstance, whether it is a circumstance where you are protesting for the liberation of all Americans, and especially black folks, um, or you're showing up to church or anywhere else, you're showing up in a dignified manner, no matter what you have, no nothing or something, uh, your accountability and your integrity is always uh, there and at the forefront. No, I love, thank you for sharing that um, because it brings so much context to this conversation. Uh, and I love the perseverance, the integrity, right, the empathy that you're learning as well. When we think about those generations, like I just don't understand how they withstood, like, right, the climate that they were navigating with so much grace and authenticity and pride and care for one another in those moments. And I wondered that juxtaposition that you had between your experiences with your grandparents, how that has influenced your journey. Well, it what it meant was to be able to stitch together and understand the fluidity of the Black experience and also what links it and locks it together. To see the enormous respect that my grandmothers had for each other women who were very different, you know? So my paternal grandmother was the first black shoe model uh, in Wisconsin, oh, wow. which you know, sounds really? kind of strange today, but when you think about it, it's only in the 2020s where we get to see the legitimacy of black women, yes. you know, directing with a camera or on screen. Like, yes, of course, it's been over time that we've seen black women on screen, but mostly they have been maids. Um, even in the 2000s, right? One of the most popular films was one about black women as maids, right? So, so Evelyn, um, you know, had a very different kind of upbringing than did my grandmother from Mississippi. But these two women had the same core values, same core principles, um, were aligned together. Um, and that was really so beautiful for me to see, not even as a child, because as a child, it's, you know, this grandma and that grandma, but as an adult also to be able to see that. And it influenced me in, in grand ways. You know, when I, on the weekends with the one grandmother, you know, we went to sleep listening to classical music. Uh, on the other hand, with the other grandmother, she held court. And I learned a lot about, between both, about the importance of manners about the importance, and, and I don't see that as respectability politics. And mm -hmm. I think that there's something very, very key about black people understanding how you treat people matters. For people who for generations, again, have been kidnapped and trafficked, labor trafficked, sex trafficked, otherwise trafficked, that's what we would call it today and even call it then, and that is you know that experience. But to have then such grace and purpose in light of that, so with my, you know, grandmother from Mississippi, you know, she 
had a kind of underground railroad still for women who were coming from the South. And what was so interesting and fascinating about that for me is that there were lots of aunts. I only found out later that these were people non-biologically related to us, but you know, as part of that old black tradition, right? These are your cousins, these are your aunts. And also to think about the sophistication of that. So there's one thing to say, oh, that's black people. Look at what black people do. They just, you know, anybody's a cousin or an aunt. But then to think about it in another way, again, affording people dignity. As my grandmother was welcoming women into her home who were escaping these fraught kinds of conditions, this kind of post Jim Crow, but not too post, the early 1970s, she wasn't going to let me, you know, some two, three, four year old, accord these beautiful, wonderful women in any other way than in some way of dignity. And what is the dignity of that? Someone that's related to you. This is aunt so-and-so, mm-hmm. right? And you treat aunt so-and-so and your cousin so-and-so differently when you understand them as that, rather than understanding them as these are individuals who have very little, have escaped essentially with what is on their backs and now are going to be living with us for a week or two or a month. And so I think that there's so much to be said about creating bonds in that way. And beyond that, I think it's something important to note, which is that in the upper Midwest, and we were in Wisconsin at the time, I grew up between Wisconsin and New York, there was significant segregation and there was significant discrimination. So even though really it was like the bowels of hell escaping what they experienced in places like Alabama, Mississippi, Louisiana, and that is just simply what it is. If we tell our American history correctly, Mm. then we would know that with the thousands of laws that included banning Black people from playing checkers in a park, chess in a park, being able to bowl, being able to play billiards. I mean, you think, who's making these laws, right? If you take your role seriously, why in the world are you writing laws that say that Black people can't even play checkers in the park, the parks that their tax dollars are helping to support? Exactly. Amen. Amen. Mm-hmm. I digress, Angela. I know that's not the point of today's show. No. But I will say that for my grandmother, with holding court with these other Black women who were the new immigrants of the North, you know, they were really thinking about how do they build community? How do they protect community? And how do they protect their children in this new North, which is not a panacea at all? Mm. Yeah, no, there's so much there. I appreciate you going there because, and, and I've heard you quite often, you, you talk about how important it is for us to understand our history, right? To understand the context of what is happening in the here and now, right? Yeah. Like so much has changed and so much has not changed at all. It's actually, we're starting to see the silent part out loud right now in this desperation to get us back to those times where, where Black people weren't considered worthy of having access to the club of being able to play. I mean, the club of being able to play checkers in the park. I mean, in a public space that you are actually, your tax dollars are going to fund um, is, is really quite remarkable to me. What is it about, because I don't think that um, wherever you go to school that we learn enough about the real history. We, we see now that they're actually, you know, banning, right, these stories from being told because I'm sure there's a fear that we aren't who we think we are. We aren't who we've been told and taught we are as a nation. What is your perspective around the history of who we are and how those stories must be told now? That's such a great question. And I'm so happy to just be in conversation with you because it feels like something that could have taken place in one of my grandmother's homes. (laughs) 
Um, you know, one of the things that I often marvel at is the strength that's been carried on across generations, right? In any other context, when you think about it, given just what indigenous people experienced in this country, what black people experienced in this country, it's a marvel that we're not extinct. I mean, it really is. And um, and that grace and sustenance, I mean, there are times in which I wonder how much is left to give, right? Because yes. I've, I've been pausing to think in recent years about what story must a black mother have told her child the night before the slave auction? So the night before she's about to be sold off or the child, what does she say? In a nation that has made her and that child by law property, has given that child the status of a cat, a dog, a pig, that literally says that child is not a human being and that she is not. And now her child is about to be sold off the next day. Mm. And she has a responsibility, something within her that is innate, that is innate that she must convey to that child to hold that child up for another generation or two, because it's gonna be a long one. It's gonna be a long one in this colonized space before there is freedom. And I think about that because we live in a nation that never has, that's never bothered to ponder what that story is. And then how is that child welcome to the next place that that child is trafficked to? What are the stories that the women around there have to tell that child, to galvanize that child about you are human, that you matter, that you have value? Even if these people don't see it, you know, the people in this house over here don't see it yes. and they've purchased you as a two or a three-year-old to pick their cotton, uh, to do their rice, their sugar cane, what have you, but you have value. You have innate worth. Even though this is a country of laws, state laws and federal laws that would hunt you down and track you down, mm. if you dare try to get to freedom and there are certain places that are where you could be free, <laughs> um, even though we're that nation, just know you have worth, you have meaning. And to me, because we have failed to tell those stories, because we failed to actually engage that and to think about it, this road is not done. It's not fully paved yet. It is not enough to just say, get over it. Get over it. It's all done. Get over Jim Crow as well. It's all done. It's not all done. And in fact, we see that it's not done when you can see the vestiges of American slavery and Jim Crow still alive in the very states that were addicted to the suffering and pain of Black people and then capitalized off of it with mortgaging Black bodies, which helped to expand American banking. And a lot of people don't know Black bodies were mortgaged. Mm -hmm. And that insured black bodies. And a lot of people don't know that before you had house insurance, you had insurance on people who were enslaved. And I think that, you know, if we're going to get to a point where we really appreciate the rule of law, where we really appreciate democracy, where we really see how important our constitution is and upholding its values, it's when we actually center those stories. And when we say never again to the vestiges that even steam out of those stories. Oh my goodness. Thanks for unlocking that truth. Like centering those stories, so important. I recently was traveling to, to Washington DC and had the privilege of going to the National Museum of African American History. And if you haven't gone, 
like make plans. You need to be there a week because you cannot consume it in a matter of hours. There's so much information. But as you were navigating your way through our history, one of the things that struck me was the, the receipts, right, that they had from the slaves who were being sold. And, you know, young Johnny, who's six years old and, and has this and this, and, and the detail they had from this property that they were literally like selling off. Um, it just, how we have been able to navigate and gain confidence in who we are as a being is quite remarkable considering those circumstances. And I know a colleague of yours from um, Minneapolis, Dr. Resma Minikin, talks a lot about, right, in, in his book, um, My Grandmother's Hands, racialized trauma and how it's passed down from generation to generation. And I frankly don't know how, knowing our history, knowing in our DNA the, the stress and the overwhelm and the anxiety that you have to have had as you laid out with the mother who is having to tell their child what's happening the next day. That's happening now when the mother is having to sit down with her 11, 12 year old son who's getting ready to, to drive and to, to let him know how his journey is gonna be very different from others. How do you reconcile all of that in our consciousness and remain hopeful and diligent in the work that you're doing? Yeah, I really say that this comes from prior generations, right? That's still something that is passed generationally on. And it's complicated too, because we're still in this dance with our children too. So there are a couple thoughts that I have on this. There's one thought, like, Imagine if we didn't experience the kind of uh, cultural, social, legal ways that seek to um, shackle uh, Black Americans still. Like imagine what that could mean in terms of turning the wheels of this nation. Because in spite of all of that, uh, the other part of this legacy that people fail to see are the <laughs> amazing Black doctors, inventors, et cetera. So many things that have been fundamental to the functioning of our country that has gotten papered over, where other people have taken credit for the work of black inventors, you know, um, so much, right? From light bulbs to street lamps, you know, all sorts of things, right? You know, to socially, you know, to hidden figures, thank goodness, you know, there's a film that comes out about it. Would we have even reached the moon had it not been for black women who couldn't mm. even use the restroom in near proximity to them, but who by hand, we're making these computer analysis and these equations to help us get to the moon and back. Yeah. Imagine if they could have gone to the bathroom. This may sound silly, but imagine allowing them to use the bathroom with everybody else. Imagine saying that you get to be paid a fair wage. You yeah. know, imagine saying you don't have to live in discriminatory, you know, context. You be you. If you could get us to the moon, maybe you could get us to Mars. Frankly, yeah. right? all of this that instead having to slug through quicksand with a land that has been consistent in its effort to tell an untrue story, mm. uh, in its effort to suppress, and sadly in its effort to oppress, whether explicit, implicit, et cetera, and our history books and all the books behind me, right? You know, we get these narratives. These are not from just Black folks. I think it's important that people understand the original recordings of these, as you said, with the receipts are done by white folks, right? Like including former presidents of the United States, right? So less people sort of, you know, sort of get turned around and say, well, this is all just kind of, you know, a black propaganda, the original 200 years of receipts, lots mm -hmm. of them. 
come from people who were engaged in oppressing Black people. But then something else that I think about, you know, in terms of that kind of strength that's drawn from that, that's helped us to withstand that, you know, that's given us a different consciousness about how to be giving, how to be kind. Um, and yet I think it's also important that people understand that it's fine to be angry as well. Um, it, it's fine to have resistance to that because I think all of that history, you know, it's a history of grace, but it's also histories of resistance. It's histories of black people with underground railroads. It's histories of courage. Um, it's histories as well of defiance within systems. It's histories of, you know, if you think about it, the people who really should be writing books about psychology, right? You know, really should be black folks, right? Like, I don't like imagine, like, how do you, how do you get that? How do you make sure that tonight someone doesn't get lynched? What ways do you need to de-escalate on the plantation <laughs> and amongst these folks? You know, and I saw my maternal grandmother when I was growing up with her engage in de-escalation. One of the things that was happening is she was bringing other black women around and they were having their, you know, weekly morning kind of meetings around the table were really, you know, about that. How do they make sure that their kids are able to grow up in the safest way possible? But I also think about a part two to this is that our role today, I have a daughter and part of this breaks my heart, the things that she's had to see. Three years old, the first time she was called an N-word, you know, um, three years old, also the year in which I was pulled over driving through Chicago on the way to Wisconsin by a person who was in an unmarked car, was a police officer who beat on my car, called me the N-word, stopped me because he was racially profiling. Wow. And the fear that I had of the possibility that this person would pull out a gun and shoot my daughter uh, in the back seat. You know, these are things that our children grow up with. And so the effort to try to keep them healthy, yeah, keep them sane in a space in which they encounter these things and other people don't. Yeah. And, and some of that means restricting some things and things that they should just be able to do. I mean, I remember when, again, with my grandmother, you know, her youngest son who was still at home, he had like a five o'clock curfew. <laughs> like, you know, who gets a five o'clock curfew? Right? You got to get in. And I think that that's still the struggle for Black parents. And if you're a child growing up in that, there are aspects of that that seem unfair. And it is unfair. Yeah. But you're also thinking about how do I save my child's life for another day? How do I preserve you so that you are able to go on to Stanford and graduate from there and go on to a PhD program or go into the military or whatever? You know, I mean, how do you make it such that your child is able to survive and leave your household at 18 on to wherever your child goes? Yeah. Well, you, you talk about the debilitating feeling that having those experiences, whether they are firsthand experience right, or you're adjacent to that experience, how that can be debilitating. Um, there's a there's a great, great um, proverb, I think it's a Cherokee proverb that says, you know, if you don't hear the whispers, will you hear the screams? And over and over, we are having to have these sorts of experiences and the fortitude to go on, I think is just remarkable for um, folks that are in this identity. And I think about quite often, I'm, I'm coming from the sports landscape. And one thing that I talked about quite often was, you know, this, this concept that losers always think about winners and winners think about winning, right? So folks are so concerned with the black experience and what we have or what we don't have. And we are just focused on our livelihood of getting through the next day. 
And so I wonder for you in a society that tends to tell Black women specifically of what um, sandbox you can play in, how you chose this really unique sandbox, again, at the intersection of law and, and medicine to play in and the resistance that you've experienced along the way. You know, it's, I, I smile at you mentioning sandboxes because for some of us, like, I actually remember being in kindergarten, pre-kindergarten and being told literally what sandboxes I could play in or not by the white girls at my school, right? Yeah. Where do these things get instilled, you know? And for those of us who had that integration experience where we were the only one or the one of the only few, right? That actually has a literal resonance for us. I, I, I remember those experiences, but for me in terms of profession, they just seem to naturally stitch together uh, both law in terms of thinking about how one creates a more just society for all people. And then health is something as being fundamental and essential. You know, Dr. King said of all of the inequities that involving health uh, is the most inhuman. The quote has been extended to inhumane, but whether we call it inhuman or inhumane, uh, the fact remains. Um, and that was in 1966 at a talk that he gave in Chicago amongst a group of elite doctors in the country. But it's interesting, Angela, because that same year, he wrote a speech in honor of a an award that he received from Planned Parenthood. It's a Humanitarian of the Year Award. A lot of people don't know this. Uh, Coretta Scott King, his wife, uh, delivered the speech, I sometimes say because Dr. King was off being arrested someplace, uh, but to show that these were his words and his sentiments, he followed up to Planned Parenthood with a second letter, again, expressing his deep gratitude at receiving that award. And in that, he spoke about uh, the importance of the alignment between a civil rights movement and a women's rights movement. And he spoke about how it was unsustainable that women would be coerced into spaces where they would have 10 kids, which was part of an agrarian uh, economy, but that couldn't be sustained with that migration north and moving into a one bedroom tenement. And so he talked about in this, how crucial it was for all women and what black women in particular to be able to govern their own bodies and reproductive health care. That's 1966. The Dr. King is talking about that where he is using the word cruel to describe the experiences when black women are coerced into a motherhood that they're not prepared for, that they cannot afford, et cetera. 1966, Dr. King is writing about this and Coretta Scott King, when she delivers the speech says that she is absolutely proud that night to be reading that speech on his behalf. You know, these are the parts of our stories that need to be told. And so when I think about, you know, what brings me to it, I mean, I think I'm brought to it for the same reasons that Dr. King uh, would write such a speech, seeing the lay of the land and what remains left for us to do. I'll add one other point, which that year in 1966, there were lots of speeches that Dr. King gave, but there was a third one, which I think also resonates for me and the work that I do. He was in Wisconsin and he was asked by a group of reporters, you know, why is it that you're talking about healthcare, women's rights, socioeconomics? And he said, because I refuse to segregate my moral concerns. Mm. I refuse to segregate my moral concerns. And so I think that there's something to be said about <laughs> the interconnection 
of these areas as being about refusing to segregate moral and intellectual concerns that they can live together and in fact in many ways deserve and need to be able to be understood and studied together. Uh, absolutely. Well, you recently um, were um, sitting in front of the, uh, excuse me, the House Judiciary Committee talking about just this, like, right, um, women's reproductive rights as a result of the leak, right, um, the draft opinion from Judge Justice Alito um, in the Roe v. Wade situation. And I, I have to tell you, I saw some clips and I had to pause and exhale in the moment of how I was feeling, like the energy that was showing up for me. And it took me back just to a few weeks ago um, of Judge Kentanji Brad Brown Jackson sitting in that same space and the disregard that our lawmakers have for people that this is the space, this is their expertise. And they go off on tangents that mean nothing and try to make you feel like you were less than capable of holding, you know, court with them in this conversation. I just want to kind of dig into your feeling like in that moment, how are you feeling when you're literally like, this is my life's work. This is what I do. I am the foremost expert in this space. Who are you to be questioning me? It's an interesting thing because, you know, I, as I would think about the conversation that we've had already, you know, sort of the need, whether Democrat or Republican, mm -hmm. to remind people of who we are. I mean, there was one Democrat um, member of the House Judiciary Committee that kept calling me Mrs. Goodwin. I am not a Mrs. Goodwin. My husband's last name is Schaefer. So there is no Mrs. Goodwin. I noticed and that I'm not here as Mrs. Goodwin. I'm actually here. <laughs> uh, because I have a JD and SJD and these other credentials in this work. So you could call me Dr. Goodwin or you could call me Professor Goodwin, but in those spaces, it's also important to remember, what am I here for? I'm here to, to convey something that's very important. So I can't get distracted and reminding you, a uh, Democratic member of Congress, that it would be appropriate to call me Professor Goodwin or Dr. Goodwin, but I can't get distracted in that. And I don't want people to get distracted in that. But I noticed that, right? Because it was five or six times in a row by the same member of Congress. But then you're right, there are the others in terms of that which was substantive, seeking you know, to do a kind of an erasure job um, and the reality is that these are, you know, these are matters that we've seen before. There was a bit of a reprieve, right? If we could consider the first reconstruction, the abolition of slavery, the second reconstruction, the 1964 Civil Rights Act, 65 Voting Rights Act, we're at a time where we need a third reconstruction. We really do. The behavior that we saw at that uh, congressional hearing uh, was beneath the dignity of our Congress, it really was. Uh, what was stunning was the absolute disregard for women's lives, for the lives of girls, non-binary folks. I mean, when you think about the following, because it was a hearing that was about abortion and connected to a leaked draft opinion written by Justice Alito of the Supreme Court that threatens to dismantle all of Roe v. Wade. And you know, there are certain key facts that really do matter when we're thinking about this. In Mississippi, which is the subject of this Supreme Court case in Mississippi law, Black women are 118 times more likely to die by carrying a pregnancy to term than by having an abortion. So one would say, why in the world would the state coerce anybody? If you want to have a pregnancy, our job as 
members of Congress, state legislatures should be making sure you're able to do that with dignity and integrity and not die in the process. But if you don't want to have a pregnancy, why in the world would we sentence you to something that looks more like a death sentence? Right. I mean, according to data that comes from the Mississippi Department of Health, 80% of cardiac deaths during pregnancy in that state are Black women. Wow. You know, the, the fact that that's not at the center of the discourse, that those statistics, you know, this is why, you know, when we talk about histories of subordination and oppression, right, the, the failure to appreciate the lives of black women, that's what it looks like. That's exactly what the what it looks like when a state does that. And the state couples that with myriad ways of voter suppression, right? We're still in the era, not far from it, the kind of modern version of what Fannie Lou Hamer fought against. Mm. Fannie Lou Hamer was arrested, she and other black women, on their way to try to vote. And as she testified before a committee of the DNC, you know, she said all of this being dragged off a bus, being taken to a men's jail, being beaten in that men's jail, screaming out for all dear manner of the universe, God, Jesus, everybody, um, all because we don't want to be second class citizens. That's the legacy. That's the history. We may not like it, but that's exactly what it is. And the modern day version of it is to see laws such as this and then have a Supreme Court draft opinion say, We'll just go to the polls. Well, what polls are Black women supposed to go to when literally the polling places that they would have gone to in Georgia, Alabama, and other places have been closed down? Thousands of polling places have been literally ripped out of communities that are Black and brown in the United States. This is the modern day Jane Crow. This is the modern day Jim Crow. It's a Jane Crow, something that Polly Murray spoke to nearly a century ago, that intersection of the hate and harm experienced because of race and because of sex. And these are the new manifestations of it. Mm. Well, and you outlined that in a great article, I want to say in the Atlantic, um, right recently around the, the new Jane Crow. And, and I love where you're pointing us because the sense over the last four to six years um, around the electric for Black women is that when we show up, things happen. So we look at the Georgia, right, races. We see literally at, at you know, President Biden and, and Vice President Harris getting elected. It was on the backs of Black women showing up in lines that were, you know, hundreds deep, standing in line for hours at a time in hot, humid Georgia making sure that their vote did matter and it did count. And then it felt like almost immediately that was discounted and saying all the things that matter to those women aren't our priorities. Thanks for getting us elected. <laughs> now go take a seat because we have other things that we wanna do to either retain power or prioritize other folks in the suburbs. And, and for me as a, a individual, I, I, I understand it because of the system of our, our politics, but as a woman, it is incredibly infuriating. And I wonder for you, both from a, a professional standpoint, but for, from a personal standpoint, how, how do you make sense of that? I really appreciate how you frame that, right? Because I think about Georgia, I think about Alabama, when Roy Moore was running for yes. Senate, a person who was banned from the malls because while he was a state official, he was harassing girls 
right? And was banned from even being able to go to mall. And was black women in Alabama that said, you will not reach the United States Senate. Yep. You will not. Um, black women for so long have been in the practice of saving our country from itself. And when we think even about the advancement of civil liberties and civil rights, so much of that has formed from the legacies of what black people have done, you know, and, and there's not a recognition of that. And I think that that would be really important. And here's what I'm talking about. You know, even when we think about sex equality, LGBTQ equality, all of this is built on a legacy within law that centers around that activism and work that black folks were doing that lead us to a 1964 Civil Rights Act that ultimately emerges into a Title VII, a Title IX, all of that, right? Its vestiges are black women's picket <laughs> signs, right? Demanding equality and demanding equality, um, not just for themselves, but for all folks. And so, you know, I'm inspired by that history and I remind my students of that history. You know, when we think about constitutional law, it, may, it is not just that written on paper. We know it can't be. It's actually how we live it. That is what is important. And to the extent that we now have what will be the first black woman justice on the United States Supreme Court in more than 233 years, this is a result of the work that black women were doing, right? That, that is it. And if we are to look at any of the kind of positive actions that have come through this United States Senate this year, signed into law by this president, that was the work of black women because Georgia produced two senators and those two senators were key to all of the legislation that has, well, you think about even something very recent, baby formula, right? There's this crisis of a shortage of baby formula. Right. There are legislators from the very states that are articulating anti-abortion campaigning um, who you know, voted against uh, access to baby formula for the people who are most impoverished in our country, and you just can't make that up. But again, thank goodness that Black women stood in line in Georgia such that two senators could come to the United States Senate who would be people who really embrace what our Constitution means when it says that there is equality under law, that there will be liberty, right? That there will be privacy, that they, you know, all of that substantive due process, thank goodness. Yeah, yeah. Well, another strong illustration of, again, Black women staying winning, focusing on winning versus on like others, like understanding that what we do, what we are fighting for is not just benefiting us, it's benefiting communities, right? Mm -hmm. And I think about, you mentioned um, for the first time in our country's history that we'll have um, a Black woman on the Supreme Court. And I think about you as the chancellor's professor at the University of California, Irvine, and I imagine in a very white space, right? Yeah. If you look to your left and the right at your peers. And remember when President Biden said that he is going to find a black woman to sit on the Supreme Court, a colleague of, of yours at a East Coast institution, right, a lecturer, said this this was up in arms like right that we were going to sacrifice the quality of the justices when we know that justice sotomayor and eventually justice brown jackson and all the other candidates that were, were um, vetted this year two times better 
than anybody else, particularly the last three. Oh, yeah. I mean, the, I think that's a great point. And it's um, so one inspiring because yes, she was, I mean, she more than checked all of the, the boxes, right? So she graduated from Harvard, Harvard with distinction in both undergraduate and law school. Um, even though I think that one doesn't necessarily have to graduate from Harvard, but to the extent that others say you must, she checked those boxes. Yep, yep, she yep. was a clerk at every level of the judiciary, the district, appellate, Supreme Court. She was a judge <laughs> at now will be all levels. She had credentials that members of this Supreme Court don't have. They've not risen to her level yet. They're not where she is. That's just proof on paper. That's receipts. Right. And so to your point, even before the nomination, um, before the nomination was confirmed and even after in terms of what she was subjected to, again, you know, showing the way in which members of Congress can act in such undignified ways, in ways that really sully the very name of the institution. But let's just say the period beforehand. You know, again, we're in this space where the presumption is Black women's incompetence, right? I mean, that's never the case in any other way. No one ever presumes that, you know, white men will be incompetent when nominated, but that presumption. And how much of that is presumption versus really fear? How much of that is really let's continue to do a, a dance that's been centuries long in terms of the lie, in terms of this is the way in which we need to explain our heinous treatment? of black women, that we must create the lie. We must create the lie that black women are lazy. I mean, I think, right, you know, if, if one really wants to tap into the psychology, who would ever enslave lazy people, right? I mean, okay. Okay. <laughs> let's break it down. Let's unlock that. Right? Like, like seriously, right? But this becomes the narrative of Jim Crow and it becomes the narrative of Jim Crow to explain centuries of American slavery because nobody is enslaving lazy people. Nobody's doing it. The, the narrative of black men as being hypersexual and just raping white women. Can you imagine all the books and all the stories that we would have from American slavery that would mm -hmm. confirm that? There's nothing, right? Look to receipts. You don't see that in Thomas Jeff Jefferson's logs, anybody's logs. It doesn't exist. But it's part of a Jim Crow narrative that helps to justify slavery. Let's rewrite the last centuries of this heinous, immoral conduct that was supported and undergirded by law. So we must create new stories, new lies to help us understand this. And so in many ways, we see that kind of stitching and thread continue because there was this pushback. And then of course, what we saw was that, you know, of the women who are in the highest contention, oh my gosh, they were amazing, amazing black women. And of yeah. course, this is what we, we do. We do amaze. And I think that Justice Jackson, will be terrific. But I will say this, my heart hurt, my gut hurt to see what she went through in those confirmation hearings. And I think that there's something to be said by that level of prurient doing it right in front of her parents. Yes. I saw that as very purposeful. That to me was straight out of a page book of Jim Crow. We will show you and we're gonna do this, we're gonna behave this way right in front of your parents and show you, you know, and ultimately she showed them and so did black women who helped to carry the day with regard to the vote and then the three Republicans who joined on. 
Yeah, but you know, you saw the grace that you talked about with with your grandparents, like that you saw um, in light of this barrage of just a lack of empathy, right? In that moment, and there was one mo tiny moment where she paused, where I think all black women felt she yes. had to make a choice. Okay, I know I... that pause that you're talking about because <laughs> yeah. I think that was a pause that was felt around the world. It was. It was like the pause, and, and she got there much later than I would have gotten there because I was oh, like, yeah. I don't know, I would have packed up my bag, got my parents, and said, "Look, this is this is not worth it." But like, Angela, that was a pause where I think that yeah, <laughs> it was a pause felt around the world where I think that there were black women. Uh, who are ready to show up in planks, yeah. right? Absolutely. You know, because here's the thing. I mean, just like legislating, and if if we if any of us were presented with the following facts, you've got someone elected to the state legislature, and they're spending their time talking about checkers and chess and how to deny people the right to play checkers and chess. You'd say, is that an intelligent lawmaker? Mm. Okay. Is that a lawmaker who's going to benefit our state? Is that a lawmaker who's about innovation such that we will improve health, the economy, industry in this state? No, it's absolute ignorance. Yes. And when you look at the performance and the behavior of those lawmakers there, again, you know, look, this is just the kind of behavior of people who are not intelligent. Yeah. This is the kind of behavior of people who are not thinking about how we maximize value. I mean, curate some better questions. Why don't we? Why don't we have the kind of hearing that Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg had? You know, why don't you, rather than leaning into stereotypes um, and leaning in on ways that really show a lack of being prepared for the moment with Justice Jackson's or Judge Jackson, soon to be Justice Jackson, but we didn't see that. You know, for example, you know, we didn't see questions that the first 10 amendments of our Constitution are called the Bill of Rights. The majority of that deals with criminal law. And she had she was a public defender. Yeah. Um, this is something that is revered in American law and has been. We didn't see questions that deserve the dignity of our Constitution or her in that kind of work. There were a number of areas where members of the Senate Judiciary Committee could have shown their sophistication, their intelligence, their ability to actually dig in. And what we saw was, you know, people showing up for kindergarten when she was ready for the PhD program. Exactly. Exactly. Right. And, and trying to pin her on being a soft on crime when they're the lawmakers. Oh, absolutely. No, that's absolutely right. When changing any of the things that concern them is actually within their hands, not within her hands. And the very idea that uh, judges uh, should not be thoughtful, deliberative, uh, taking in all facts and information, that's the role of a judge, yeah. right? Um, that is what a judge is supposed to do. And even some of the cruelty that we heard, you know, one senator saying that uh, in one of the cases where uh, there was a sentencing and uh, the young man got, you know, I think less than a few years and this Senator uh, Graham saying, well, he would have given 50 years. Well, thank goodness you're not a judge, right? Exactly. <laughs> thank goodness exactly. you're not a judge. And let's be clear, that was a, a circumstance in which we're talking about an 18 year old. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that, again, if we heard intelligent questioning, then it would have been, about how do we address what has taken place over the last 15 years in our society where kids have access 
to cell phones. Yes. And it's kids who are trading these images amongst each other. And what do we do when this is not the creepy guy with the white van who's 40 or 50 years old with these images, but it's a 15 year old, 16 year old, 17 year old, 18 year old. How in the world, as a judge, do you confront that and, and deal with that and unpack that? And how do we, right? That would have been far more, you know, I think relevant for these times, because that is exactly where we are. And those are the kinds of questions that judges are having to grapple with and law enforcement is having to grapple with. Yeah, well, and, and so many places we can go with that. Um, because the truth of the matter, there's projection there. Like, because probably <laughs> in the circumstances, he would have forgotten about constitutional law and would have done what benefited him or what he felt like what was right in that situation. It's so just infuriating seeing that. And I get really curious for you again, the journey that you've been on, the distinguished individual that you are, like how you carry yourself, you're, you're present in the media, obviously doing things. Um, I think I, I listened to a podcast where one of your students showed up and asked a question. You're impacting the next generation through the work that you're doing. How have you been able to unlock the club on your journey? Because I know it has to have been hard. And I think I sense that like, right, your goal is bigger than the obstacles that you're overcoming and you focus on that. But I also think that it has to have been traumatic and demoralizing and overwhelming at times as well. Well, you know, it's, it's such a great question. And uh, we could spend another, we could spend hours on that because there's this interesting balance. So, you know, across the arc of time in terms of my own career, one, I would say, is that the lessons from my grandparents have been very important in terms of that arc of my career. You know, manners do matter. Manners are not sellout, right? Anybody who reads what I write, anybody who, you know, hears me speak, you know where I stand. But I do think how we come to be able to approach conversations with each other is actually really important. And over the time of that, I think it's important that you can get support and mentoring, or at least you used to be able to, right, um, from anyone across a political spectrum right? Whether conservative or liberal, right? Whether male, female, you know, non-binary, right? It's, it's there. Because I think that sometimes there's the perspective that um, if you are a woman or you're a woman of color, the only person who's going to be there to mentor you is another woman of color. Sometimes there aren't women of color in the room exactly. <laughs> when you show up. I mean, and if you're showing up with excellence, there are people who see that, right? And sometimes those are people who you may not actually think are going to be the people who see your excellence. And this is where I think holding your integrity really does matter, right? Because there are people who may see your excellence and you may not be politically aligned and you can tell them that we are not on the same page on this, but thank you for seeing me. And you can see where excellence likes excellence in some ways. I will also say that there are times in which there can be disappointments because there may be instances where you are politically aligned, but someone wants to subordinate you for their own elevation. Right. Yeah. And it's important to be aware of that. I mean, just because someone may agree with you on paper about things, they may not wish for you to be in the room. They may not wish to share space with you. So at the end of the day, your values really do matter. And so for my own journey, it's been one that I've enjoyed. But it is true, you know, that, you know, and I don't spend time. The interesting thing, I'm glad that you asked it. I don't spend time thinking about those spaces where there were the impediments. Um, when I think back, I'm thinking about, you know, those folks who helped with the boost. Yes. Um, but if I were to think about um, the, the impediment, I would say that there still lives amongst people a shock and awe when 
a black woman who's prepared shows up in the room. Yes, it does. And I will say that that can be, that can come from other people of color. Um, and that can be from white women. Um, and of course it can be from white men too. We've seen that, you know, in congressional hearings. Um, but some folks might be surprised as well that sometimes it's actually, you know, a white guy who's just like, yeah, you've got it and I want to see you on my team, yes. right? So it's it's all a matter of where your values are and where your values align along that journey. And I would say the most painful parts, right, are when, you know, you would expect that there would be certain people who would recognize uh, what you're bringing to the table and um, they have some affinity with you. They may not be black folk, but you know, it might be a woman, it might be a person of color. And um, you're like, really, gee, you? You know, um, it's, it's those moments, but you know, you bounce. I don't spend time on that uh, at all. But one, you know, it, it exists. And I'll tell you another thing that exists too, which is concerning. Um, Many young people today are talking about imposter syndrome. It's not something that I knew when I was a child at all. It was not a language around us, you know. It was, you know, for me, it was like my grandparents had the receipts. Like, like all of my generations, like I don't have to be an imposter because they already paid for my voyage around the world several times. Yes. Several times. They already put that in, right? Uh, talk about legacy. This is my legacy. But I see today that there are many young people who are showing up. And, you know, and, and my message to them is, you know, try as best as possible to get that out of your skin, your soul. However, those seeds got implanted in this notion of imposter syndrome that you don't deserve your place at the table. You wouldn't be at the table if you had not earned the seat at the table. You know, part of unpacking what's behind the drape <laughs> is to understand that that is a message that's very purposefully placed inside of you to make you feel lesser than and to make you not do your best, right? That's purposeful, right? The difference between now and back then is that, you know, Black folks had like a thick glass, like, no, my thick glass is protecting me from any of those rays that you're trying to bounce in saying that I'm not, right? And again, it goes back to those earliest moments of enslavement in the United States when black mothers whispering to their children the night before, I'm going to tell you something that you must carry with you, despite all of the cacophony and all of the noise around, you hold this in. And that would be my message for, you know, young folks and even, you know, women who are in their 30s, 40s and 50s who are still feeling imposter syndrome. You know, ju just know, right, you wouldn't be there if you hadn't already earned it, if you didn't already have value you know, let that get out because it does not serve you well. It will never yeah. serve you well. It doesn't, it doesn't. So we have 400 years of receipts of the greatness in you, right? And so believe in yourself, trust yourself is what I'm hearing. And I think that's such a profound insight that you're sharing because we do, the world will have us think otherwise. They want us to question our capabilities and ourselves. But if we trust who we are, if we remember the journey that our ancestors have been on to get us to this point, we should walk in those rooms with confidence. And be prepared, right? I mean, because part of it is also the, the depth of preparation. And I realize that there's a narrative, a narrative now about, you know, respectability politics, as if the things that have been values for us over so, so long should just be tossed away. And I will agree that it is 
you know, how hard to grow up in a world where you got a 5 p.m. curfew because your mother's trying to save you from being bashed in by the police, right? You know, it's a trade-off, right? But she's trying to get you to where you need to be and out of this so that you can survive another generation too, et cetera. And I realized the hardness of that. And, you know, and sadly, you know, Black women have, you know, in doing so, you know, there's this sort of attack from society and the attack that can come from within. Because if you're the young man, and I remember my grandmother saying to me, baby, get your shoes. <laughs> <laughs> Go to the basketball court because that's where my uncle would be. Mm. You know, he's in high school and it's it's not even five o'clock. Yeah. But she's bringing him home, you know, and she's using every name, right? The first name, middle name, last name <laughs> in front of his friends, right? Like, I'm sure this is incredibly embarrassing. Yeah. And who do you cite for your embarrassment? Not the universe, but that's my mom who's showing up. I mean, there's a whole lot of ways in which Black women have, have had to take heat for things when they're trying to build and stitch across all of these spaces. But, you know, let me just say this, you know, showing up prepared and showing up with our own excellence does matter, right? Like that's if you want to have a journey of excellence, mm -hmm. right? Like if you don't, like peace and blessings, you yes. know, you do you. But if yeah. you have aspirations and goals for what you want, there's a way to show up. There's a way in which to get things done. And there is a standard that other people should be, you know, they should, you set the standard and they should be following you as this is, you know, the standard. Because, you know, I would say that, you know, some have wondered about where is it or within what constructs um, have Black people been coerced into thinking that not doing their best should be the standard. There's a whole lot to unpack there. And I want to be very careful with how I speak about that, mm -hmm. right? Um, but I do think that there is something to be said about um, these efforts to deny Black people their wholeness and their whole you know, ability to be fulfilled. Because when we really see Black people in their wholeness and their ability to be fulfilled and to translate that, we just, I mean, it's fireworks, it's beauty, it's brilliance across art, innovation, everything. It is. That's the legacy of this United States. The capital of Washington, D.C. was built by Black people. I mean, come on, you know? And even if you think about the horrors of January 6th, who are the people that are sweeping it up at the end of the day to make it whole again, right? And so it's not a matter of socioeconomics, right? It's across that spectrum. Yes. Yes. Wow. Mic drop on that. Um, so well said and so much appreciated um, for sharing that with, with me. I'm learning so much in this conversation with you today. Um, I'm so inspired by the work that you're doing and the person that you are uh, and grateful to your grandparents uh, for having those conversations and exposing you to um, the, the work that you now are having a profound impact on. So Michelle, thank you for joining us today, but I hope I have a couple more minutes to, to kind of go on the back nine with you with some rapid fire questions to help us find out a little bit more about Professor Michelle Goodwin. You have a couple minutes to do the back yeah, nine with us? Absolutely, thank you. We will be right back with Professor Goodwin in a moment. Professor Goodwin, thank you so much again for the wisdom that you shared with us today. I want to find out a little bit more about you here in the back nine. And I guess the first question is, besides your home, which feels like you're all over the place these days, but besides your home, what is the place that you feel the safest to be yourself? It's a good question. I mean, if we were saying a, a place in geography, it's probably Italy. Um, if we're picking some place in the world, uh, and if we're picking some place that's an institution, I'd say that probably a library. 
I can imagine, right? Consume, you're consuming a lot of information over the course of your career. So the library. Yeah, is libraries just feel like safe places and in the garden, right? Um, both of those spaces have real meaning for me in my life. I love it. I love it. What is the situation that you walk into with trepidation every time? Oh, that's a really good question because I try not to walk into rooms with trepidation. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. How do you do that? How? Like, what are? What's the formula? Well, um, the for, you know, here it is. I, I don't. I I'll have to come back on the show again after having thought of the formula. But I will tell you of a scenario that I remember from when I was about three years old. My grandmother standing on her porch. She was defending her house because there was a woman that she had taken in and the kids. They were inside. I was supposed to be inside and I was a very good kid. I really, really was, but I snuck <laughs> outside. My grandmother is standing there and there's a mob and it may have only been 10, 10 men out there. To me, it looked like 30, 40, 50. And they were demanding that my grandmother release this woman or you know, back to this man and the kids. And my grandmother stood there like a tree. They were not going to get into her house. These women were, this woman was not going to have to come out at all. I remember my grandmother's consciousness of me because I couldn't reach really above the rails and she had put her hand, right? Like to make sure that I couldn't, right? So she's managing these multiple things. And this man, the husband, I guess, took off his shoe and threw it at my grandmother. It missed her. But what I noticed is that she did not move. She was like, and to me, I was like, I saw Superwoman that day, and that image has never left my mind. I have never forgotten that time on the porch. <laughs> wow. So, well, you learn, like, right? You, you don't flinch, even inside of. Pressure. I mean, maybe flinch inside, but you know, she may have been flinching inside, and I'm sure she was calculating, yeah. right? Like, what to do because I walk into rooms thinking and being thoughtful about them, right? That's how I walk in. The things that I might feel dread about, I feel dread about anything affecting the lives of my children, right? My daughter, my stepson, that's where there would be trepidation or fear, the worry about something happening with my husband. But when it comes to business, when it comes to work, no. <laughs> Ready. Michelle, what's... um a club either professionally or personally that you are currently trying to unlock wow that's a, another good question um and so it would be it would it be something that i'm already involved in or not involved in yeah yeah it could be continuing to to unlock that well you know i would say that across the areas that i'm involved in that there are efforts of unlocking. You know, I serve on the board of directors of a number of organizations. They range from the ACLU to uh, Population Services International, the Hastings Center, et cetera. And across all of those spaces, I'm looking to roll up my sleeves and give the best of myself to those organizations. How can we be better given these legacies and histories that don't escape any of the spaces and clubs to which I am a member. Um, every space that I walk in, we have legacies that are yet for us to unpack. Um, some 
are better than others and have had histories where they've been more engaged in rolling up their sleeves in terms of equality for women, people of color, et cetera, and advancing the concerns that, you know, that map onto my concerns. Socioeconomic justice is really important. But I would say I don't enter any of those rooms without thinking about those very issues. And at the end of the day, I think that in the back of my mind is always about uh, how and where my grandmothers could enter, right? I, I am in constant thought about, you know, I'm, I'm linked to trying to provide a better space for them. They're long gone, they're dead, but I'm still thinking about them in relationship to this society. And the clubs. <laughs> and the clubs, right. And I get the sense that there's a lot of intentionality in what you do. And I have great appreciation for, for you being so intentional in the spaces that you occupy uh, and that you navigate. Uh, it's the last question I have for you. It's a fun one. I, I know that you navigate a lot of different spaces, come in the, the company of a lot of different people, some unique voices and perspectives. Um, if you were to have a dinner party and you're inviting four people to dinner with you, um, who would those four, living or deceased, who would those four individuals be? Oh, that's a great question. So I would invite James Baldwin. I would invite Fannie Lou Hamer. Um, I would invite Sojourner Truth. Um, I'd invite Harriet Tubman. Oh, my goodness. Can I be a fly on the wall for that dinner? The conversation that would ensue the um, imagine the laughter like right the connection uh and the learning that would happen i love that i'm, I'm jealous about that that uh <laughs> dinner party for sure well michelle it has been a pleasure um a couple last questions what are you working on now and where can our viewers follow you yes so um your viewers can follow me at at michelle b goodwin and that's on Twitter and also on Instagram. You can also find me at michellebgoodwin.com, uh, my website. And then in terms of what I'm working on now, I'm working on a memoir and I'm also working up on a book that would follow on to Policing the Womb, Invisible Women and the Criminalization of Motherhood. And that book focuses on the corruption and the complicity of our institutions, such as our Supreme Court and also our legislatures in fashioning the kinds of laws and cultures that would lead to the subordination of women in our society. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. Both the memoir and that um, of unraveling the Supreme Court system and the justice system, both powerful. Let us know when the books are out. We would love to have you back. To I would love to come back. Wow, you have such a great show, Angela. Thank you so much for doing this. And thank you also for your pioneering work. The very questions you asked of me are ones that of course, be put back to you. And I'd be fascinated to hear those because you've had a journey too, one of pioneering and also excellence. And so I, I thank you for having the show and for inviting me on. Oh, it has been a pleasure. Again, continued success in all the work that you're doing. Um, so many of us appreciate the hard work right, and the things that you are having to navigate to make sure that women's rights and reproductive rights are front and center in the conversation today. So thank you for, for joining us today. Uh, again, um, Angela Taylor, host of Unlocking the Club. Thank you all for joining us. Thanks to our amazing guest, Professor Michelle Goodwin, for this conversation. Uh, and we look forward to seeing you next time. Sounds great. Thanks for listening to Unlocking the Club. If this conversation resonated with you, subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or your favorite streaming platform. 
so that you can experience every episode. And follow us on social media where you'll hear about future guests, access special features, and connect with this amazing community. Head on over there and let us know how you are unlocking the club. Until next time, peace.